Hello and welcome. You're listening to Talkville 21, the podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Talkville 21 podcast. Once again, we will be continuing our ongoing analysis of the impact of Francis Fukuyama's end of history, this time through a much more pragmatic look at the consequences of this mode of thinking. We are joined today by Professor Susan Perry of the American University of Paris. Our discussion winds its way through many fascinating topics, from the end of the Afghan war to the cybersecurity landscape, the rise of China, and the future of the European Union. Dr. Susan Perry is a specialist in international human rights law and digital technology, and teaches law and politics at the American University of Paris, as well as directing several of the university's graduate programs. Dr. Perry's work focuses on vulnerable populations, women, children, and communities in conflict, whose rights are being violated by the state, society, or industry, often in breach of binding legal conventions. Dr. Perry has collaborated on several projects funded by the European Commission, and she is currently an advisory board member of Sherpa, a Horizon 2020 European Commission grant on the ethical use of artificial intelligence in Europe. Her most recent books analyze the nexus between digital technology, human rights, and deliberative democracy, Illusion Pixel in French, Le Mieux Editions 2015, Human Rights and Digital Technology, Palgrave 2017, and a third project underway on the digital divide in education. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. All right, so let's jump right in. Professor Susan Perry, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be with you today. Oh, it's our pleasure to have you. Why don't we just jump right in with a couple of questions, starting with some legal questions on the evolving situation in Afghanistan. Recently, the Taliban have gained some degree of recognition. They've gained political control of the country, and there are a few countries that are recognizing them as the legitimate leader of Afghanistan. I'm thinking most notably of China. My question is, what happens from a legal perspective when a terrorist organization suddenly becomes an actual semi-functional state? Well, in international law, it's actually quite simple. The Taliban are bound in international law to uphold and respect the treaties that have been signed by their predecessors. Otherwise, we'd have chaos in the international system. But just because this is designated by international law doesn't mean the Taliban will uphold it. However, if they want international humanitarian aid funding, they're going to have to provide some semblance of respecting the treaties that their predecessors have signed and ratified. So that's really the only leverage that governments that respect human rights have with respect to Afghanistan. Aid money. That's it. And how likely is it that this will be enough to provoke any meaningful change in the Taliban regime? I think there's going to, there's, the, the, first of all, there are several Talibans, right? There's not just one Taliban. And so my guess is that those who have control of the communications apparatus will go to a lot of effort to try and demonstrate uh, that they are upholding human rights. You notice they had a, a recent demonstration, a pro-Taliban demonstration by women who were completely burqa'd. So that demonstrates that the message is getting through. There are certain paradigms that must be respected in exchange for international aid that they can't uphold these rights across the territory under their control goes without saying. But they're certainly going to, you're going to have a section of the Taliban that's going to push hard for some of these rights to be respected, not all, but some. Then you have other sections of the Taliban that aren't even interested, that either don't understand the concepts or aren't interested in the concepts. And for the moment, if we look at China, for example, China has a large copper mine in Afghanistan that, of course, it wants to assure access to and be able to transport the copper out for its growing industry and artificial intelligence and its technology industry. And even China can only be pushed so far. 
with respect to Taliban violations. In other words, the Taliban, if there's any indication that Chinese workers are endangered, for example, there are going to be difficulties with respect to China as well. China's only provided about 30 million in humanitarian aids thus far, so it's not a lot. So essentially, it's going to come down to money. And all we can hope for for now is to avoid the most heinous violations and to try and get out via Qatar and other third countries that can negotiate for Europe and the United States to try and get as many people out who are in danger and to wait them out. All right. So there's a financial incentive for the Taliban to ensure a comparatively stable territory. What is the impact of the international community? It's not as important as the impact of countries like China, Mm -hmm. which are willing to invest. But even China's patience can be worn thin. Mm -hmm. They share a border with Afghanistan and the Taliban will have to march to the Chinese drummer. And if they don't, there'll be difficulties for both China and for the Taliban. So while I would argue that the West has a minor- and the UN have a minority role to play at the moment, they still have a role. And the cash is critical for the survival of the regime. My guess is that you'll have, again, two factions, one that is more amenable to upholding human rights in order to get the cash, and another that's not interested. Well, you've mentioned China quite a lot in this context. How likely do you think it will be that the international community as a whole can use changes in relationships with China in order to influence what's going on in Afghanistan. Do you think that China will have a greater sway and could be persuaded to modify the situation? Or do they also have a limited influence? A, they have a limited influence. B, they have a very large human rights problem having locked up 1 million Uyghurs in Xinjiang. C, Chinese interest in Afghanistan is is purely economic. And our relations with China are at a recent low. And I don't see any, you know, I'm thinking of the recent uh, sale of submarines that upset the French so much to the Australians. I don't see any way that much can be done. To, all the Chinese could do would be to lean on the Taliban if individuals were kidnapped, held hostage, that sort of thing. They could negotiate, but they actually would have a great deal of difficulty getting the Taliban to respect and uphold human rights. I think Qatar might actually be more successful at that than the Chinese. Interesting. Would you would you care to elaborate on the relationship between the Taliban and Qatar? Qatar is working very, very hard. As you know, Qatar's recently, uh, for example, they, they, they signed and ratified the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights in 2018. And they're having it with all with two reservations, four statements that constituted reservations. In other words, they didn't see how they were really going to be able to uphold it, but they wanted to sign and ratify because they want to be part of this so-called international community. They want to be an important player. And human rights are one wonderful tool for them with respect to the Taliban uh, in order to augment their influence as a go-between with respect to the West and the Taliban. So they'll use the tool of human rights, even though they themselves have great difficulty uh, with certain aspects of human rights. Well, that brings us to another question specifically about the Biden administration's focus on human rights as the center point of its foreign policy. Obviously, this feels like a hiccup. Are there any strategies that the administration can effectively implement going forward? Yes, we can close Guantanamo. In other words, in order to make human rights a cornerstone of one's administration, one has to uphold not only civil and political rights, that means gerrymandering has to be addressed, the ability to vote has to be addressed. Uh, It also means that economic and social rights need to be upheld. 
And so human rights is a package, uh, they're indivisible. And so consequently, one great gesture would be to close Guantanamo because actions often speak louder than discourse. All right, this is going to seem like a bit of a leading question, which it is, and I would love to give you the floor for this, but you feel that the United States is not necessarily leading by example when it comes to human rights. I think Europe leads by example when it comes to human rights because they have less at stake. They're not the leading superpower, and they um, have benefited from uh, an American security presence on European soil for 70 years. And all of that cash that would have been spent on defense has been spent on upholding social systems that create social cohesion. And so the Europeans have been very forward thinking with human rights, particularly the European Union. And so they've had the luxury of being able to invest in human rights and becoming a normative power on the world stage. Yet it seems to me that that only applies necessarily within Europe. On the whole, would you feel that this is reflected in the foreign policy of the European Union? Yeah, they don't realism. have a foreign policy, really, when you think about it. Other, the European Union is going in the right direction. For the moment, their foreign policy is limited. Uh, they may actually create some sort of defense consortium over the next, you know, the, the, Macron seems determined to do so. Merkel is obviously stepping down after four terms. This is an opening. It would be very, very interesting to see once the European Union is a coordinated military power, whether they too, they continue to uphold human rights or whether the luxury of upholding human rights only belongs to those states that are not heavily involved in policing. Hmm. All right. Well, with that in mind, I'd like to engage in a tiny bit of newsjacking. Uh, you mentioned the sale of the uh, nuclear submarines to Australia and specifically the, uh, the the French reaction. Do you feel that this might be an element that pushes France and, and Europe on the whole in the right direction, particularly giving, uh, given France's increasing influence within Europe with the end of Merkel's um, political um, career? Mm. First of all, to me, NATO has often seemed like an anomaly since the end of the Cold War. Uh, it wasn't able to expand to include Russia for obvious reasons, uh, even though some of my colleagues think that would have been a good idea. I think it was highly problematic. Mm. Consequently, the uh, current events have, have outpaced NATO. Uh, Turkey has become a, a difficult member of NATO, and it may be the moment to reassess and restructure European defense. It's been a 70-year inexpensive ride for the European uh, Europeans in general, and the time has come to assume responsibility. So I think now is the moment. I think we'll see a great deal of French activity, particularly if Macron gets a second term. He appears to be absolutely determined. And without a, a very, very strong and credible leader in Germany, I think it could move forward quite a bit under his uh, leadership. For one, I couldn't agree more. I, I do believe that, yes, uh, th things have been in need of a, of a foreign policy upgrade since the 1990s, but that sort of brings us to something that you said earlier. Given the importance of an American-led international coalition in allowing Europe to construct a human rights infrastructure, do you feel that this new, this possible development of a European-centric defense organization might have an impact on the human rights record of the European Union? It might. It depends on whether they use it for defensive purposes or offensive purposes. It depends on whether or not they use it to, to uh, shore up dictatorships. 
or if they actually use it to prevent humanitarian crises. It really depends on what they do with their newfound power, if they're able to construct that power. It's, it's up to you, know, the human rights paradigm is in place. What they do with that normative legacy is really up to the European Union. I'm hopeful, but I'm also very realistic. A heavily armed region of the world often poses a problem for human rights. Well, do you think there's a, again, this is a tangent, but do you think that there's a, there's a possibility of true, let's call it superpower competition between the United States and Europe, given the shared values? No, I think Europe will always always be the third man and will always lean. Uh, the transatlantic relationship, the cultural connections are too strong. So there'll be a lot of squabbling, as there always is amongst family members. But when push comes, and again, the Chinese agenda is quite clear. The South China Sea is now a Chinese lake. The Indian Ocean is unfortunately named the Indian Ocean in most languages except Chinese. And this poses a problem for China as well. So the expansion of China, which this kind of expansion hasn't been seen since the Ming Dynasty voyages, 14th century Ming Dynasty voyages. And, and so consequently, Europe, as it responds, will need to respond in coordination to the expansion of China with the United States. Absolutely. And, and, work, and work with India, Australia, you know, the Quad. I mean, if I were China, I would suspect containment. It's beginning to look that way. And if containment consists of letting the Chinese have Afghanistan, <laughs> that's maybe to the long-term advantage of the United States and Europe. That's interesting given the reaction to this nuclear uh, submarine sale. Actually, I would like to go back to that. What are the main points of contention between France and the U.S. in terms of this sale, uh, if, if you don't mind talking it's about actually, that? Actually, it's really simple. The French were very excited about this deal because it brought employment to a, a region that had suffered from deindustrialization. The, and also the French, don't forget, they weren't producing nuclear submarines. They were producing diesel-driven submarines. But the French have every capacity to produce nuclear submarines. It was the Australians who, at the time could not engage in nuclear. They've obviously changed their minds spectacularly. Um, some very good lobbying, whether it was by Biden and Blinken or by other elements in the US administration. The British came in to provide part of the technology that's required to build these submarines. And although there were a couple of warning signs from the Australian government uh, in May, for example, and again in June, um, more recently, they had issued a statement upholding the deal. And so the French were getting mixed signals. But most importantly, they were informed the day of the announcement. And that is the problem. For the French, the 240th anniversary of the French naval victory uh, during the American Revolution, that is, I would just call it careless politics arrogant politics. You don't inform an ally at the last minute that you're going to undercut them and provide technology to another ally that the undercut country, France, could have supplied had the Australians asked for it. Now, interestingly enough, the French are negotiating with India. So maybe those submarines are going to get end up being made for India because India needs them. I don't see the United States doing this twice. That's why the French are squawking so much. They, they, the message needs to be loud and clear. Okay, so this is a diplomatic debacle, but it doesn't necessarily change the nature of the impending uh, Ooh, containment. They're just squabbling. All right. Well, I wanted to to go back to the subject of Europe and talk about something that the European Union seems to be um, seems to be leading internationally, and that's human rights in a digital context. There's an idea that the European Union is currently leading the fight when it comes to securing human rights in this context. 
do you believe that to be true? And if so, what are the most effective actions that are being taken? True is quite a big statement. But what I do think is, so I've been working on this since 2010, 2011, quite extensively, actually, and working in partnership with Professor Claudia Rhoda at AUP. And I've learned a great deal about the technology and about the work of the European Union. We've had several grants. We've been very deeply involved in the general data protection regulation and creating tools and kits and modules uh, to train police officers and lawyers and engineers in assuring that personal data is protected in the European Union. Now, the reason why the European Union promulgated the General Data Protection Regulation was because they did not control the bulk of the personal data traffic worldwide. It was controlled by the United States. So in order to catch up, they had to use a legal tool to give themselves more leverage economically. And that's what the general data protection regulation is. So it's a great human rights approach to the protection of privacy with respect to personal data. The reasons behind it, the political reasons, were not necessarily uh, the most altruistic. Now, with artificial intelligence, the European Union is not using a human rights framework. This semester, students in the advanced human rights class at AUP in the new master's program will be analyzing the 108-page draft legislation for responsible AI in Europe. So it hasn't been promulgated yet. And what one notices immediately is the reference to an ethical framework. So the European Union no longer wants to be bound by the nine human rights treaties that they've signed and ratified. Instead, they want to develop some very, very strict legislation about, say, facial recognition technology, but they don't want to impede innovation and the development of the European Union in this space. And so they're shifting from a human rights framework to control technology to an ethical framework, which is weaker. It's a weaker form of control. So consequently, even though they are leaders in the field, because no one has a piece of legislation that looks like this, and it's actually a great piece of legislation, they've taken a step back because they're afraid that they'll shut down innovation. And so leader they may be, but they're not charging ahead at quite the same speed that they were initially. And the incentive for this is to more quickly develop AI infrastructures within the European Union. How does the AI landscape in the European Union compare to the American or the Chinese one? Well, we think we know about the Chinese AI landscape. We're not entirely sure. China's moving very quickly in some areas. They're also very concerned, by the way, about personal data protection. They just don't have a legislative framework that's very robust, and it certainly doesn't rely on human rights to promote privacy protections. They're very concerned about organized crime online, for example, and on the dark web. I would say that America is far and away the leader in artificial intelligence. All indicators point to this, that the European Union is going to specialize in certain areas of AI, like healthcare, for example, uh, smart cities, for example, and other aspects of AI, like defense, are going to be left probably to the Chinese and the Americans. Although the French are doing some exploration of robots and, and other sorts of autonomous technologies. Drones, they have a good drone company, quite successful actually, Parrot, that works for the military. So the French are a, a, a small player, you know, Estonia is very forward looking. All European countries are considering this, but they're, they're just not at the same level as the United States. And this Even just... in terms of cloud, the cloud, you know, 80% of the cloud is owned by, uh, if one can own something virtual, mm-hmm. is owned by, uh, the servers are owned, by American companies. This is interesting because um, 
it ties into what you were saying about the the, the dropping of uh, human rights based AI to something you know with a more ethical focus. That leads to my question: Given the importance of developing technologies specifically in artificial intelligence, but more more generally for the purposes of cybersecurity, for digital infrastructure, among other things, such as smart cities. How, how likely is it that these will be not just implemented, not just within the European Union, but also used as economic tools, uh, as goods to be sold to countries with less stellar uh, human rights records, and that they will be used in ways that would run counter to many of the ideals espoused by Europe? So it's already happening. So first, you have three types of cyber warfare, right? And cyber defense tools that you can sell. You have autonomous weapon systems, drones, robots, you name it, we've got it. You have infrastructure, cyber operations against infrastructure like electricity grids, for example. So you can hire hackers or buy software to bring down infrastructure and cause substantive humanitarian damage. And then also you have something really interesting, which is MDH, which is misinformation, disinformation, and hate speech. And you would think, well, that's not very important. Actually, it is because it was very important in Myanmar recently. And so MDH tools can be as simple as Facebook, but you can also purchase software algorithms that allow a junta, for example, to really isolate particular elements online, dissident elements, and distort their message. So all of that software is available. We know about the Pegasus Project. We know about Israel. We, we, it's, it's ubiquitous right now. So it's dual-use technology. It can be used for good to promote an economy, and it can also be used in warfare. All countries, I mean, the United States, Cisco, for example, sold the systems that helped China put up their great firewall. Everybody is selling, particularly software, but also the hardware that enables the use of technology that can be used in peacetime for economic development, for example, but also in cyber warfare. So it's no longer as clear cut, like a tank can only be used in war. A missile is only going to be used in war, but, a software that can break into an electric grid system is initially software that is used to support a grid system. The boundaries are no longer clear for any of us and we need much better legislation. I, I believe it would be fairly accurate to say that in the past few years, especially since the beginning of the pandemic, there has been a major increase in the amount of attacks we've seen in the way that the digital infrastructure has been damaged by ongoing uh, cyber projects, not necessarily from state-based uh, entities, although some, you know, are private entities perhaps hiding behind state-based entities mm -hmm. or, or the reverse. Or they've rather. gotten the nod from the state. Exactly, exactly. Uh, what, what exactly is being done about this? So let's start with AUP. What, what do we actually do to protect the personal data of our staff, faculty, and students? We have a wonderful, wonderful data protection officer, Taylor Brooks, who works tirelessly to protect our personal data, but it's certainly not good enough. Every time a company changes to a new system, that's a vulnerable moment. Most companies do not keep up their security software. Only the biotech industry, to my knowledge, and the defense industry. And we know that the defense industry has been incredibly lackadaisical in the past, over the past four or five years. Only the biotech industry, because of the, the value of patents, has been attentive, extremely attentive to this. And I would... I suspect that most systems are vulnerable. 
um, far more vulnerable than we realize. Also, once quantum computing is actually stabilized, which could take, let's say, 10 years, then all of our security systems are moot. They're no longer viable, and we'll need new types of security systems. And we don't have them yet. We don't know what direction to go in. And so to answer your question, we're in a transition period where all of us are extraordinarily vulnerable. And what surprises me the most is how few attacks there actually are. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's a lot to absorb. Don't forget, it's not that easy to attack. It's not that easy to get into systems. And so I would guess that the number of individuals capable worldwide of doing this has not reached a critical mass. And so each government or country or private company has a, a stable of these individuals and that's all they've got. And there's only so much that they can attend to, which is fortunate. Naturally. Well, I have two questions for you in that case. The, the first is, which concerns you more? Cyber espionage that you seem to have mentioned uh, implicitly in your, in your previous response or outright cyber warfare? Or rather, which do you think we should be more concerned about? So the espionage is ongoing. It's all the time. Mm -hmm. So as an American living abroad, I know that every email I have ever sent may have been stocked, stored by the U.S. government in a data storage system for no reason other than that. I'm, you know, I might be uh, at some point do something suspicious. So cyber espionage has accompanied the genesis of email, right? So it's, it's been there from the get go. Cyber warfare, we're not really sure what that means yet. And so one is more likely to fear what one doesn't know. We live fairly comfortably with cyber espionage, all of us. And it's very disturbing to find out that Morocco was spying on Macron using you know, Israeli software. Macron should have known better. You have to assume that any, anything we do, what we're doing right now, Zoom sells our data all the time, right? So anything we do can be spied. You have no privacy in a digital arena unless you are taking extraordinary precautions, which you can take as a journalist, for example, if you're trying to protect your sources. Cyber warfare, I'm not sure what that means because I look around me and I think, so cyber warfare requires electricity to function. So the very first thing you wanna do is bring down the electricity, the electrical system of your enemy state. Once you've done that, how much of what we do is relying on electricity? Quite a bit, quite a bit. And if you bring down the electrical system, you might bring it down for long periods of time. At the moment, we have electrical systems that serve very large populations. When I was growing up, you know, each town had its own electrical hub. You had wires stringing along from one town to the next, but you didn't have these large power plants providing enormous amounts of power, which, which are very easy to bring down. So uh, we're going to have to look towards ways of creating uh, local autonomy for pockets to be able to continue to function during a period of cyber warfare. And I, again, I don't know what cyber warfare is going to look like, but when I attend conferences and I listen to what military research and design is working on, I can't believe it. I'd much rather be spied upon. <laughs> and it may never be used. Don't forget, nuclear arms have not been used either for the moment, at least not in any large scale way since Hiroshima. That's true. And so um, these research and design, it's always interesting, but boots on the ground, nuts and bolts tend to be the way we go about warfare. And you anticipate, or rather, in, in the research that you've seen uh, in the conferences that you've attended, this still seems to be the prevailing idea that boots on the ground will continue to be the backbone of military it's conflict. The it's the, the prevailing 
ideology and structure everywhere. China, France, the US, as you know, AUP students participate in the uh, regular exercice coalition, the war college exercise every year. And it's actually a very traditional exercise. They only introduced cyber warfare two or three years ago into the oh. exercise. So. But, but you have some really imaginative people doing some interesting thinking out there. All right. Uh, one final question about cyber warfare, specifically about the hardening of these these really important shatter points of the uh, of the infrastructure system. Uh, do, do you believe that that will become a priority in the next couple of years? Well, what I'm hoping for is that as we design smart cities, we design backup systems. Smart cities are entirely reliant on electricity. Hmm. So we design backup systems that function through clean energy sources and that can in some form become autonomous if there's an attack on the system. Right now, a uh, virus races through the system and you don't wanna be in a COVID-like situation where you were with a biological virus where your only response is to shut down. Right? You need to have other alternatives. So I know there's work being done on this and um, we'll just have to see how it develops, frankly. But it, you know, the window of opportunity is five to 10 years to work on these types of systems. And the cybersecurity industry, you believe, is one that's that's growing and to, that, that will rise to booming. meet these challenges? It's booming. Uh, whether it will meet these challenges, I don't know. But there's <laughs> certainly a meeting often. Uh, there's a lot of money involved in consulting. And again, the biotech industry is really a leader in cybersecurity. For in-house internal systems for biotech companies, we've seen in the press that the military has not been that impressive with their cybersecurity, which is very unfortunate. But you can also understand that many of the people who have to make the decisions don't really understand how cybersecurity functions. Whereas in a biotech firm, you have a group of scientists working together. They might be more likely to understand. And also they have more impetus to protect their patented material. I'm hoping we'll move in this direction. I'm optimistic. All right. Well, let's go back to the idea of the international community once more. And uh, let's talk about what's being done in the international community to discuss these issues. Do you feel that uh, digital security is really becoming one that's coming to the forefront, not just in the European Union or you know, independently in the United States, but also on a worldwide scale? There are several initiatives. I would say the humanitarian community is actually doing a better job addressing cybersecurity issues than the governance community. But you know, we know the G7 takes this very seriously. The G20, there have been uh, conferences, reports, it's certainly on the table. I think everyone is looking for the magic solution and they'll adopt it immediately. The one low cost coherent response to protect national systems from aggressive hacking and disruption. And I don't think anybody's found that yet. California is working, uh, interestingly, the state of California has some very interesting projects also working on this. Europe works at, they have C-certs, they have all kinds of, of security, cybersecurity bodies in place. There's a lot of discussion. Uh, you have an exercise called the GRIDX, which takes place in the U.S. every year, and there's a great deal of attention paid to cybersecurity there. So, so the conversation is happening. My guess is the private sector, again, is very attentive to this. And we'll see what happens with the governance. So it, it's moving forward. We don't have any international treaties. We don't, we don't have what we need yet. All right. So governments may or may not catch up in the next few years. They're working on it, shall we say. All right. I want to move on to a completely different topic. As you know, I reached out to you in the context of an ongoing series of podcasts about the impact of Francis Fukuyama's work and specifically the notion of the end of history and the last man. And so 
I suppose I could ask you what you believe of that theory, but I'd rather to go into the specifics. The premise, of course, of Fukuyama is the idea that liberal democracy had to some degree intellectually triumphed over opposing modes of thought. And given that premise... And, and from Stanford University, that definitely looked to be the case. He was just wrong. But anyway. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So given that premise, though, in your perspective, to what could we attribute this new wave of radicalization and more specifically to our topic, cyber authoritarianism? Arrogance, arrogance. Two things, actually. Arrogance on the part of the liberal democracies that um, shouted in triumph and the extraordinary control of research and design in the tech sectors by these liberal democracies. The only way China has been able to catch up is through industrial espionage and theft. That's it. Russia has an extraordinary stable of, of young and dynamic hackers, but they're probably not more than a few dozen. You know, they're just, it, it's just, they, they cause a lot of trouble with very few people. Israel's a serious contender. There's just a very small country. All in all, as you look across the globe, there is A, the frustration with the arrogance of having won the Cold War, and B, the frustration with the inability to keep up with the pace of research and design, the pace that's set by these liberal democracies. And I include Israel in the set of liberal democracies, even though they haven't necessarily behaved as such. So these two phenomena, I think, have, have led to a determination on the part of certain countries to use that very technology, which is acquired either through research and design, and the Chinese are certainly now, they have labs, they train people abroad, they're now training them at home, they're catching up, to beat the West at its own game, to demonstrate that liberal democracy is hogwash, and to have better research and design in the tech sector. So it's a, it's a, it's a driving force for certain countries. The countries that can challenge liberal democracy, there's, there's really only one, and that's China. I mean, North Korea, they could cause havoc, but they certainly can't challenge liberal democracies. So I suspect, so there, there are two approaches to China. I actually just had a wonderful email exchange with Joseph Nye, and, and he, you know, in his great wisdom said, you know, we really need to engage track two diplomacy. We have to be talking to China all the time. I'm thinking of the telephone call by Trump's head of the Joint Chief of Staff to his counterpart in China on the eve of Trump's election loss saying, don't worry, he's not going to nuke you. We have things, you know, it's all very stable here. Things, things are under control. We need to engage China as much as we possibly can while sticking to our own script. In other words, there has to be a constant dialogue so that the Chinese can um, feel settled in, in their place as the hegemon in the Pacific, in East Asia. And we at the same time have to be extremely prepared for accidental conflict. Because when you overarm everybody in a region, sometimes somebody accidentally pulls a trigger, All right? So, so my guess is that we're in a very delicate situation. Liberal democracies uh, cried victory far too soon. 
they shared too much technology or they were not willing to be careful about how they protected their research and design, that technology has been transferred. And you now have another discourse in China, a nationalist discourse, which is very powerful and which now needs to be addressed very seriously. The Chinese need to be taken seriously and India needs to be supported as much as possible. I believe we can all agree on those two points. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, I would love to engage more deeply with this specific question, but I, I, I just don't believe we're going to have the time. So I'm going to move on to the final question, which is, could you tell us a little bit more about this new program at AUP with a focus on human rights and uh, digitalization? Well, since we didn't think that Francis Fukuyama was correct, and we don't think we were anywhere near the end of history, and in fact, we think that this new chapter in history is being written now as we speak. We wanted to open up a master's program so that students could actually interact with those actors who are making decisions in Europe and the United States right now, as we speak, train them to become digital privacy protection officers, to work in the international or the private sector, and to be able to push forward a human rights agenda with respect to technology. So the new master's is directed by Claudia Rota, Professor Claudia Rota, who's a computer scientist and who works on human attention in digital environments. And it's a, it's a three semester program. Students emerge with a qualification, if they pass the exam, uh, from the International Association of Privacy Professionals as a data protection officer, which is a wonderful certificate to have as you're seeking employment. We have also applied for something called the RNCP, which provides us with an interaction uh, with the French government, which is very beneficial to our students. And intellectually, whenever you join two seemingly unrelated disciplines like law and science, you get some really, really interesting thinking that goes on in the interstice between the two disciplines. And so it's a it's a very well-organized, efficient program that provides students with exactly the information they're going to need to influence how the tech sector develops in the coming 10 to 20 years. Well, I'd hazard a guess that given what you said about the governmental sector finally beginning to catch up uh, and grow wise to these questions and the booming of the, uh, the private sector in matters of cybersecurity and particularly the relationship with, uh, with human rights, uh, one can expect that the career opportunities are, are bountiful I would hope so. I would hope so because we need to pay attention to this sector. Mm. It's extremely important. I'm absolutely committed to it. And so, you know, we're, we're, we've just started with a, a pilot group this year and we're entering our first full recruitment season now as we speak. All right. Well, we at Talkville 21 certainly wish you luck uh, for that. Thank you. We're deeply grateful for mm. your support. Thank you, Susan Perry, for being with us today. And uh, this is Talkville 21. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Talkville 21 podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website, talkville21.com. That's T-O-C-Q-U-E-V-I-L-L-E-2-1.com. And stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz Number no. 9, Opus 40, for our intro and outro music. This piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com.